So I'm just going to go ahead and admit it. I love the Home and Garden Network on television. I absolutely love it. It's a good thing that we don't have cable at the Rue House. Because if we had cable, uh, instead of getting you know, stuff done around the house, I would probably spend the majority of my time watching other people get stuff done around the house. Uh, so instead, I have, to, I have to settle for what Hulu offers, and I also have to settle for the time that I, that I have. Uh, you know, House Hunters is cool. You know, love it or list it, so it, it's okay. But the shows that I really get into are the home improvement shows. Uh, I love House Hunters Renovations, uh, Flip or Flop, Hometown, uh, Rehab Addict, especially since that's located in Minneapolis for the most part, uh, Good Bones. And honestly, whose favorite isn't Fixer Upper, right? I mean, everybody loves Chip and Joanna. How could you not? Their, their characters, you know, their qualities just sort of endear you to them. And I'm not the only one. HGTV is absolutely huge. You can't meet anyone who doesn't, at this point, think that they're decoration and home renovation experts because they've seen one episode of Good Bones. Um, but why is that? Why are we drawn to these shows about houses that are in dire straits until someone comes along to intervene and create this massive transformation? You know, I think it's the same reason why we love the stories about the underdogs uh, who uh, uh, go from rags to riches. We love those stories about those people that go from zero to hero. We love those, those, uh, those, those tales of people that go from completely chaotic lives to lives that are ordered and, uh, and successful. We love stories of redemption. And it's fun to see the, the, the qualities and the properties uh, that, these, that these properties take on, but that's not the most exciting part. The most exciting part of the show is the big reveal, right? Uh, it, it's the time when the renovators bring the property owners to the property that has been fixed up so that they can see it uh, for the first time. And every time that Chip and Joanna open up that, uh, that screen covering up the house, the homeowners are just like in this joyful shock, right? They just can't believe how beautiful it is. You know, sometimes there's, there's hugs, sometimes there's tears, uh, you know, but it, 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 it's fun and it's, it's, you can enter into their joy. And maybe I've missed one, but I have never seen an episode of Fixer Upper or any of those shows when the big reveal happens and the owners are like, What is that? This is terrible. You've never seen anything like that. I've never seen homeowners get disgusted, scared, or even angry at what the product was. Everyone is happy about their home looking new and looking fresh. And so we've been looking at this last narrative in the book of Genesis, which is essentially about how God protected his people through the tragedy and triumph uh, through this guy named Joseph. Uh, after being sold by his brothers into slavery, and after spending uh, a few years in prison after being falsely accused of rape, uh, he ascends to the second-in-command uh, in Egypt under Pharaoh. And his major role at this point in the story is that he is sort of the famine relief guy. He's the one uh, that everyone in the world is coming to in order to buy grain in the midst of the seven-year famine that is going on. Uh, the entire known world is coming to him, including his, his brother's. And though they had sold him into slavery and caused so much pain, 
in his life, it's clear that Joseph wanted reconciliation. But before that could happen, he needed to know if they had, over the years, had a total home makeover. Had they changed? Had they repented? And today we're going to take this huge chunk out of the story and see that Joseph is essentially leading up to the big reveal. He is going to disclose his identity to his brothers and hope that in doing so, he can make his family more than just a fixer-upper. He wants his family to see how God sovereignly uses broken lives to be fixer-uppers that point to his redemption through his grace, through his sacrifice, and through his reconciliation. So those are the three big themes that we're going to be looking at. Grace, sacrifice, and reconciliation. Let's take the first one. We need to recognize God's mercy in redemption. God's mercy and grace in redemption. Chapter 43 sort of brings us back to Canaan in the sad situation that Jacob's family has been in. It's been two years since they left Egypt they left their brother Simeon in prison as sort of collateral with Joseph. And it would have been simple to have him released. All they needed to do was go back to Egypt with their youngest brother, Benjamin. But uh, Benjamin was Jacob's prized son. And uh, because Jacob feared losing Benjamin, and because he, he simply didn't even trust these brothers to lead him back to Egypt, he just decides to cut his losses and move on. In his mind, Joseph and Simeon are gone and, and, and risking Benjamin at this point. Man, that, that's, that's too much. But God is not ready to give up on his promises yet to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. So uh, he was going to make a, a people for himself by which he would bless the world and so in his providence, God forces this family back to Egypt. In verses 1, or two, one and 2, it, it presents a new choice. The choice is no longer to stay in Canaan and simply lose uh, Simeon in Egypt or to go back to Egypt, risk Benjamin, and, uh, and live so there, the choice really is take the risk of Benjamin or starve to death. And this is threatening both their lives and the deep-seated promise that God gave to Jacob's family to make them exceedingly numerous. Now in verse 2 it says, uh, in, in chapter 43, it says, And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, his father said to them, Go again and buy us a little food. So he commands this really in spite of the risk that it poses to Benjamin in this journey. Uh, surprisingly, Judah steps up and takes responsibility for his younger brother. Not only does Jacob recognize the danger of this journey, but he recognizes that um, his sons are going to go back to Egypt and they're probably going to be accused of theft. Because if you remember back in chapter 42, uh, when the sons were on their way home with all the grain that they had purchased, they stopped to feed their, their donkeys, 
And they looked in their wallets and they found that all the money that they had used to pay for their grain was, was back in their sacks. So in the mind of Egypt, they're thinking, boy, we sure look like we stole all of this food. And so they had no idea that Joseph was setting them up. So Jacob, he doubles the money in their sacks. Now in verse 11, he says, take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bag, carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Now doesn't that just sound enticing? And this is an ironic gift because this is the same exact thing that the Ishmaelite traders were bringing down to Egypt when the brothers sold Joseph into slavery. And in verse 14, Jacob sends him off with a prayer. He says, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And, and that's just what happens. They, they end up getting to Egypt really without a problem. There's no record of the long journey. It probably would have been a, a four- to six-month journey. But seemingly, there's no issues. But when they get to Egypt, terror dominates them. They're immediately invited over to Joseph's house, which makes them think that they are on Egypt's most wanted list. And uh, they reach Joseph's house, and in their terror, they absolutely spill everything. Uh, verse 19, they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door. And you can just imagine their fear here. Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Our money was in full weight, so we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. And it's at this point that these men, whose entire lives have been dominated by wickedness, lies, deceit, murder, they encounter the grace of God. Verse 23. He replied, this is the, the steward of Joseph, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. So the thing that we can't really see here in the English is that this steward is speaking to them in their native language. He says to them essentially, shalom to you. Peace, wholeness, wellness, be, be to you. And not only does he address them in, in this sort of theistic terms, but also he ignores the entire Egyptian pantheon and he refers to God as uh, in terms that they would have known. They, they, he uses the word Elohim, the God who has revealed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This God had reimbursed them. This God had shown them mercy. This God held back on giving them what they deserved. Further, Simeon was released. Their animals were completely fed. And they themselves were bathed. Indeed, Elohim, the God of their grandfather uh, and their father, here, heard the prayer of Jacob. Joseph arrives again, uh, and again the dreams from chapter 37 come true. They all bow down 
But this time is different because, uh, because Joseph sees his full-blooded blooded brother, Benjamin. And he just breaks down. Verse 30 says, Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep. He entered his chamber and wept there. Remember, this hasn't had the Scooby-Doo ending yet. <laughs> Joseph hasn't taken off the mask and shown who he really is. They are simply seeing this as a merciful action from God through this Egyptian leader. They share a meal together. The way the text is laid out here, they essentially become drunk together. This is a party. They don't know who he is. They're bonding as a family. And we can't help but read this story in light of God's mercy to us in Christ Jesus. As much as we hate to admit, we are more like Joseph's brothers than we think. We have hurt others by our sin, and we have caused a separation between us and God. And so because of that, God rightly directs his justice and his anger and his wrath against us for this. But in Christ Jesus, he gives us mercy. God's mercy can be defined as not giving us or withholding from us what we deserve, uh, namely his judgment and his wrath. But he also gives us grace. And grace can be defined on giving us what we don't deserve. And Joseph here is taking the role of the Christ-type figure. It was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do for us. He's bearing their shame and guilt and welcomes them to the table. And that is just what Jesus does for us. It can be a scary thing to go to God with all of your junk, with all of your baggage that you're carrying, you might be like the brothers. You need to get to the threshold of the house. And you need to spill everything. And when you do, Jesus is graciously and mercifully there waiting to tell you, peace to you. Do not be afraid. I have overcome sin and death. And you are welcome here. There's a second thing that we need to receive as well, and that we need to receive redemption through sacrifice. Receive redemption through sacrifice. Chapter 44 seems rather strange in light of every, every positive thing that we've seen here in chapter 43. Everything seemed great. Joseph was having his, a great time with his brothers for perhaps the first time ever. And of course, they don't know who he is, but it just seems right. They're a family again. They have spent the last two, uh, last 22 years away from him. But now the next morning, they all wake up, they all sober up, and they begin to get their things together. And what does Joseph do? He calls his steward back over. And he has them pack uh, the brothers' sacks with more grain than they can physically carry, and he instructs his steward to take the silver cup 
a very costly, a very uh, expensive cup and put it in Benjamin's sack and have them go on their way. For this kind of theft, a big restitution would be involved if they're caught. And further, after seeing them off, Joseph then has his steward chase them down, accuse them of this theft. It's a very important cup to, to him, apparently. And, and, of course, to the brothers, this would be absolutely ridiculous. They just spent the last two years in absolute fear and terror, believing that they had stolen from Pharaoh. And that if they would have been caught, something major would have happened to them. So for them... Uh, for any one of them to do this would have been a high offense. So then in verse 9 of chapter 44, uh, they said to the steward, whichever your, stu- your servants is found with this shall die. And we will also be my Lord's servants. Kind of a rash vow. And in a dramatic fashion, the steward goes from oldest to youngest. Now, obviously, that just hypes up the drama. No one has it. He gets to Benjamin's sack. And then in verse 12, it says, And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Can you even imagine the feeling inside those ten other brothers? when they realize that this cup is in Benjamin's sack. The one person that they couldn't come home without is the one who in their very vow should now get the death sentence. Further, they can't go home because they've also just pledged their servanthood to Joseph. This is like worst case scenario here. Verse 14 describes the manner in which they returned to Joseph's house. And it was in in more fear than it was when they came the day before. But it's here that we see the transformation of Judah. He has indeed taken over the role of the eldest brother. He wasn't the oldest brother. Reuben was actually the oldest brother. But if you remember what Reuben did, was Reuben decided to sleep with his stepmother in order to spite his father Jacob and sort of take hold of more power than he wanted to have within the family. This is not a great family, folks. But here's Judah... And in uh, chapter 38, he was painted, he painted a terrible picture of what his life was like, having slept with his daughter-in-law, thinking she was a prostitute. But here, it shows that Judah really steps up and he shows his maturity. He's not the same Judah that he was in chapter 38. Look in verse 16. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. He he is really trying here, but verse 17 is the worst news that he could even imagine. But he, meaning Joseph, said, Far be it from me that I should do so. 
Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. In other words, Benjamin stays and is my slave, and y'all go home and enjoy life. Yeah, right. How could they, knowing that in their return home, it would mean the very death of their father by means of heartbreak? So what happens next is nothing short of an example of what true love is. Not Disney princess fairy tale kind of love. But true love, holy love, godly love. After a lengthy speech of why this is terrible for the family, Judah says in verse 30, Now therefore, as soon as, as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back home with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. You see, holy love Godly love is not a feeling. It is sacrificial. To truly love is to give up your own will, your own desires, your own dreams, even your own safety and security for the good of others. And Judah, who ironically was the very one that had the idea initially to sell Joseph into slavery, is at this point telling the prime minister of Egypt, take my life and let my brother's life go. He foreshadows Jesus' work of how John would describe it in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Jesus, in his great love, left his place at the God the Father's side to take on flesh. He lived a perfect life as our substitute. And because he lived sinlessly, he was able to be the perfect substitute for us in his death. On the cross, Jesus sacrificed himself willingly so that you and I could go back to the Father. Whereas we should have continued to be slaves to sin, stealing the glory that rightly belongs to God and facing our just punishment... Jesus took the blame for us. Christ displayed perfect love in his death. And through it, we received redemption by trusting in his work on our behalf. In 
Judah's heroic act of offering himself for Benjamin, we get a cosmic glimpse into the heart of God who gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And you have that chance for redemption today. You have that chance through Christ's sacrifice to say that sounds like a pretty good deal and I'm going to trust in him. Will you make it yours today? Well, there's a third thing we need to do and that is find redemption through reconciliation. Find redemption through reconciliation. It's in chapter 45 now that we have the big reveal. Joanna's there saying, are you ready to see your fixer-upper? The screen's been in front of this house, this, and this Egyptian, ready, uh, this Egyptian leader is ready to roll it, roll it apart. And verse 1, uh, chapter 45, tells us that, that, that Joseph, he can't even hold it together anymore. Then Joseph could not control himself before those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Can you imagine what went through their mind? They've never even said Joseph's name before. So it's not like he's just playing a cruel trick. He says, I'm Joseph. And the word that Moses used for dismayed here has more of a, a sense of shell shock. They psychologically cannot handle the truth bomb that just exploded in front of them. And it's easy to be, to put ourselves in the brother's position. They are now confronted with the little brother who sold, who was sold by them into slavery 22 years ago, and he isn't just some average citizen. He is the second most powerful man in the known world. Revenge seems logical. But Joseph is quick to comfort them. He's not in this to harm them. He's in this to heal them and to restore them to himself. And he does this by putting the events of the last 22 years into perspective. He's had a lot of time to think about this. Though the brothers are morally responsible for what happened, he says God was behind it all in order to feed the entire world and to save his people. Look with me in verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. 
And God sent me before you to preserve a remnant on the earth, to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land in Egypt. So it's clear that the brothers here I mean, they're responsible for this horrendous thing that they did. But Jacob, Joseph here is making the, the case that it was part of God's plan. That God had used these events as the catalyst by which he would do great things. And that's God's MO. It's how he seems to work. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 tells us this, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him, now get this, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Doesn't say some things that might fit into his puzzle. It says all things. Further, uh, Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things, not just some little pieces that are picked up here and there, it says all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. And he does whatever he pleases. When Nebuchadnezzar came out of his insanity of eating grass and thinking that he was an object of livestock, he said this, and he, meaning Yahweh, God, does according to his will amongst the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In short, Joseph is making the case here that God is sovereign over all things. And he puts a radical re reorientation into our perspective. You know, see, many of us have strained relationships in our lives. Many of us are suffering from the pain that relational strife brings. And based on this, we can be assured that God is working in the midst of these things. His plan is flowing in and through every single thing that happens in this world. And let's be honest, it might not be his will that we uh, see all of our horizontal relationships reconciled here on this side of heaven. For believers in Christ, there, there will be a time in heaven that I believe we're going to see each other and say, wow, that was really stupid that we went on for that long arguing about that. How great is Christ? It might not always end the way that we would like. But if we are in Christ, he has sovereignly orchestrated our reconciliation with God the Father and so we can have peace in any situation. And as depressing as this entire Joseph narrative has been, it ends on a very sweet note. 
Joseph sends his, his brothers back to Canaan with Benjamin and Simeon in the finest vehicles that Egypt had to offer. I don't know what would be equivalent. I would say like a Benz, but I don't know. Limousine, I don't know. Chevy truck? I don't know. Something super nice with air conditioning and Bluetooth, right? Okay, so he sends them out back to Egypt, uh, from Egypt to Canaan, in order to bring Jacob to Joseph. Now, Jacob, think about this, as a father, has lived for 22 years in grief that his son was dead. 22 years when he really hasn't trusted his other sons that they're completely honest with what happened. They reach home. Verse 25 tells us, they went up, up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan their father, to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is alive. And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And this, his heart, his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had, spent, had, had sent to carry them, uh, his spirit, the, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive, and I will go and see him before I die. Now let's be honest. Jacob lived a pathetic life. He lived a life as a liar and a cheat and a manipulator. But he trusted in God and lost hope that God's promise to Abraham. But yet Joseph was, in a sense, resurrected in Jacob's heart. And with the news of Joseph being alive, Jacob again has hope. His life was a fixer-upper, and it was completed in the news that Joseph is alive. It's much like our hearts, which in their natural sense are spiritually dead and without hope. But the true big reveal is that the one who is greater than Joseph literally died and rose from the dead. And with the news that Jesus is alive and reigning today, through faith, our hearts are revived and we can truly live. We can live out the rest of our days with the hope that whatever happens to us in this world, in the end, it's going to be okay. Because we have the one who has taken these broken and busted up homes of our lives and made them not just into fixer-uppers, but, into, but in brand new builds that will last forever to the praise of his glorious grace.
Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more content, be sure to subscribe. If you like what you've heard, consider partnering with us in our mission. Text the word, GIVE, to 320-313-1950.